Lord, truly you are holy, God. We gather into this place today, Lord. Um, as one church body, Lord, um, as one voice, um, singing out to you, Lord, to um, lift up your praises, God, because you are so worthy and we are so unworthy, God. Um, we thank you that you even give us the chance, Lord, to open up your word, God, to... Um, Read the words of your heart to us, Lord, to read um, your redemptive story of sending your son to die on a cross, Lord, for our sin and our shame, God. And not only that, but, Lord, giving us eternal life, Lord. Um, so we thank you so much for that this morning, God. And um, Just be with us and speak to us. Amen. Just to see the world lit up with the people of God coming together, singing, praising God, and the word of God proclaimed. If you're new with us today, I don't mumble and bumble through lots of things like that. But I wanted to let you know, uh, you have a worship guide there in front of you. It tells you what's going on. We have the special announcements today of baptisms and births. And you have those announcements and you can contact us. So there's a communication card if you're interested in that. Uh, please fill that out. And on the back of your worship guide are notes, and you'll want to take notes today because we're talking about the Beatitudes, the gospel of the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 1 through 12. You'll turn with me to Matthew 5, 1 through 12. No idea. It's clicking. Okay. Good? There we go. That's going to sound good on the internet. Here we go. Matthew 5, 1 and 2. We're going to get busy. We're just going to dive right in. Then I'm going to pray and then we'll look at the next beatitude, the gospel of the beatitudes. Matthew 5, seeing the crowd, there's the awareness of Jesus, his observation before there are great crowds following him. if that helps. Does that help? That helps. It's probably my jacket. Tony Robbins would not approve of me taking off his jacket. There's the awareness of Jesus seeing the crowds. He went up on the mountain and when he sat down, there's the authority of Jesus. The new Moses goes on the mountain. He takes his seat, the king on his throne and his disciples came to him. Those are Christ's people. And he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, this is the first discourse in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. And here's the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is present tense, this kingdom of heaven. It's the opposite of self-sufficiency. It's the soul's bankruptcy. It's a deep humility that recognizes the spiritual poverty of humanity. Uh, my wife, she is a wonderful wife, she is a wonderful mother, and she's also a theologian. And she pointed that out to me. We're teaching our kids the Beatitudes. And we, they were asking, well, what's that mean? And we were talking, and she said, it's the idea of recognition. Because the, here's the point. Everybody is dependent on God. Amen? The poor in spirit recognize it. Everybody in the world, every person that's living today is dependent on God, the poor in spirit recognize it. And so, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize their spiritual poverty. 
We can't earn that. We, it's a gift that God shows us, and with it comes his kingdom. That by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we have salvation through Jesus. And so that necessity of humility leads us to the second beatitude that we'll cover today. It is the countenance of repentance. Father, I pray as we look at this particular beatitude. Father, this is a tough one for myself. And I can't imagine that uh, I'm the only one for your word says no temptation has overtaken us, but such is as common to man. And I pray that uh, we would be moved by your spirit through the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanted to begin with a few images this morning. Uh, Some of them I had to just pick and choose. Uh, You have to be careful when you look these images up on a computer because you can get all sorts of things. Uh, But here's the first one. YouTube. It's this print screaming of my computer because I Googled abortion in YouTube. I was looking for a particular video. It was called This Is Abortion, and here's what it says. This video has been removed because of its graphic nature. Well, if abortion is so wrong, why do we need to remove it from the Internet? Because it goes through and it shows you just what actually happens in an abortion. There was another video I was going to show you, but it was a little long. Uh, But it was of of an OBGYN who was pulling out the tools, which if you were to look at those tools, apart from him being an OBGYN, you would think they were uh, salad tongs and a knife uh, in the kitchen. And he was explaining to you, this is what happens when you do an abortion. And this is a guy who used to perform them and now is uh, promoting uh, life because he came to a point in his life where he recognized he was taking life. And so I couldn't really show you the graphic nature of abortion. Uh, The next slide, uh, you have a precious young girl that's not for sale, human trafficking. It goes on all over the country. It goes on in America. The next slide uh, shows you what is the hot-button political issue of the day. You can be for and against anything and everything, but if you're against this, it doesn't matter what your political affiliation. You are on the outs in Washington. The next slide shows uh, a definition Genocide, the deliberate extermination of a people or nation. And we see that on the world. All right. It's the worst for me to do. Hold this. I feel like a comedian. Thank you. Genocide, it goes on across the world. We see it. We see it so much. My question to you, my question to me, the question for me this week is, is repentance. Is just why doesn't this affect me when I see it on TV anymore? The next slide shows uh, starving children. Does that touch you? Or do we see this too much that we just don't mourn anymore? And then the next slide shows a prostitution-free zone. And I, I had to, 
I, I, I couldn't even choose some of the more tame pictures here. I was going to show you a picture of a crowded street in Amsterdam. Do we mourn over these things? Do we mourn over the persecuted church? And let me bring it home. Do we mourn over our friends and family, good people, whose sole desire this weekend was to have a good time, to have one too many? They didn't drive home, so they're not putting other lives in danger. But they're waking up today just heads cloudy. Do we mourn? Let me bring it, bring it even closer to home. Do we mourn over gossip in the church? Do we mourn over our lack of zeal to spread the gospel? Are we weeping over these things? Do we have a brokenness for what belittles God? John Stott says, we Christians have made so much of grace that we've made light of sin. And, and that is the key issue behind this beatitude is we've probably made so light of sin that we don't even know what breaks our heart anymore. Moving from society uh, through the church and our families to our individual hearts, my question I want to answer today in my own life and in yours is what, what makes you mourn? What makes you brokenhearted? Matthew 5, 4, we're going to look at what does it mean to mourn. Here's how it begins. Blessed are those who mourn, and here's how it ends, for they shall be comforted. This next characteristic naturally flows from the first. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If this is the recognition, the mourning is the emotion. A way to capture the paradox of this, if that word blessed means fortunate, means joyful and happy, happy are the sad. Are you and I sad? Those pictures probably touch you. But do we see them too much that we're not sad anymore? Blessed, it's the receiver of grace, as we learned last week. The divinely bestowed well-being are the present state. Are we presently sad? Are we mourners, those who mourn? What is, what is mourning? We've got to de- describe that. We've got to define it. Otherwise, um, we miss the point. There are certain things we mourn over that just shouldn't get us down, right? Getting upset over an sporting event that it ruins the rest of your day is probably not what Jesus has in mind here. Uh, being deeply distressed over the fact that your house is unclean and company is coming over is probably missing the point of this idea of mourning. Uh, on the other end, it's not being um, overly morose or forever weepy. Right? The old joke goes, the young girl told her father, that horse must be a Christian because it has a long face. Ooh, I'm a believer in Jesus. It's not what it is. What Jesus is bringing out here, and more on that in a minute, from the Old Testament into the New is this is the mourning of our, uh, over our own sin and that of society. It's, in sum, it's anything in our own lives and the lives of others that is less than God's best. And so in this sense, Christians, if they follow through with this beatitude, are the true realists. We don't overlook the pain of the world, nor are we overwhelmed by the pain of the world. But it deeply saddens us. It troubles us. 
mourning. It begins in the Old Testament. We see it right in the beginning of Genesis where we mourn over death. They literally mourned over death and they did it for a period of time in the life of Jacob. Uh, They had, in Israel, they had professional mourners, those that would line up and go to funerals and mourn over the deaths of people. In Numbers, we see people mourning over God's judgment. Solomon wrote for us in Ecclesiastes, there's a time to mourn. But the one I want to camp on is Isaiah 6, 5. It's the personal mourning over personal sin. Personal sin in your own life and the life that you see in other people. On Isaiah 6, 5, this should be up there. It says, I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Here's the prophet of God, the one who has the words of God on his mouth, and he says, I have unclean lips. And everybody around me does as well. Now watch Watch the connection here. Why does he say that? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we see clearly the King of eternity, the King of kings, and we see our lives for what they are, we see there's a vast gap in between. Paul said it like this in Romans eight twenty four. in the next slide. Here's that key word that we've been kind of camping on. Wretched man that I am, or wretched woman that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? The answer to that question, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so Paul in Romans says, I look at my own, I look at Jesus and I look at my own life and I weep. And I want to, an illustration that I, that I want to camp on because if we get this down, we'll understand what it means to be poor in spirit and what poor be mournful. If you see that illustration, that at your conversion, there will grow an awareness of God's holiness and that should ever be increasing in your life. At the same time, there should be an ever increasing awareness of our own sinfulness. And to the degree that we see both of those things is to the degree that we see the cross. We will say, and we could have put one verse on every cross there where Paul says, I am the least of the apostles. I am the least of the saints. I am the chief of sinners. To be deeply troubled, not just over what those pictures I showed you of our society's sins, but deeply troubled over our own sin. And move to the point of weeping over the fact that we just fall woefully short of the glory of God. Moving into the New Testament, there are ways to weep. Romans 12 says we weep with those we weep. We rejoice with those who who rejoice, right? We've done that. When people have lost children, we weep with them. And then when they have children... We've done it more than once in this congregation. We weep with those who weep, and we rejoice with those who rejoice. Solomon said there's a time to mourn. Paul says in Corinthians, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Did he just put that in the same? Sorrowful, mourning, yet joyful? Yes, that's the paradox of the Christian life. We see the world clearly. We see it right. He says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For the godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, 
whereas worldly grief produces death. There are those who do mourn in this world. They have no reason why they mourn, and they don't mourn very well. It doesn't lead them to Jesus. And James says in James 4, 9, and 10, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And then there's corporate mourning. I think of Jesus. We'll get there in a minute when he mourned over Jerusalem. And around us, do we see people around us of unclean lips? Do, do when I show you and talk to you about abortion, does that trouble you? Do we, we talk about the erosion of truth in the confusion of our culture where it is absolutely illegal in one state to counsel a boy who wants to be a girl in his mind? You cannot do that psychologically. Yet it's absolutely okay if he wants to go and become a transgender. That's absolutely okay. And we can't, according to the laws in New Jersey, can't do anything about that. That's confusing. It's troubling. It should cause us to to weep. It's like going to an Oktoberfest and you see people you love, people you, you, you hang out with, and they have no clue. And they sing their songs and they raise their steins, one too many, just for good fun. Who are you, preacher, to say anything to me? I haven't done anything to offend you. In fact, the world mocks mourners. They laugh at mourners. Think about it. The world doesn't like mourners. We are a happy-go-lucky people. Mourners are like wet blankets. Mourner, like wet blanket, like we're going to do a baptism today. How, how uh, uncalled for would it be to those, not myself, but those who get in the water to do the baptism, and then we get out and we hand them a towel that's wet. They would go, that's not right. That's what the world looks at. Why are you mourning? Which is really weird, because if you, if you were to just watch the news, from the moment you got up this morning until you go to bed, just watch the news. There's, there should be a heaviness of all the negativity that we see in the news. And what we do in our world, it's very confusing, is our news is so heavy and negative, but then we pair it right next to a sitcom that's flippant and never touches on anything of depth. And so what happens to you and I is we become immune to the severity of sin. That the gravity of sin, uh, the new normal, is glossed over with humor. There are, there are pastors who fill big churches because they're funny guys and they know how to tell a good story. That's what the world is looking for, and it's crept into the church. And the world, like like I read earlier, they're full of worldly grief. They don't even know how to mourn. I remember when tragedy struck this valley and the former uh, principal of the Vail Mountain School, um, part of what his job was to do was walk them through this tragedy. But as a part of that, he had to actually show people that they weren't even mourning correctly over what happened because they didn't even know how to handle the situation. And some were mourning because everybody else was mourning and they didn't know why they were mourning. They just, well, Sally's doing it. So I guess I, I guess I ought to weep too. So the world is confused when it comes to this, but Jesus speaks with absolute clarity. Blessed are those who mourn over their own sin and the sin of the world around them. And he gives you a promise, for they shall be comforted. 
The four here shows the the explanation that follows. Here's the result of our true mourning, not mourning over the fact that my sports team lost, not mourning over the fact that uh, I didn't get my way. My sweet little girl didn't get her way earlier this week, and and it just troubled her. And I said, sweetie, that, that shouldn't trouble you. Well, I'm disappointed. Well, you can be disappointed, but you can handle it in a different way. But here's what follows those who truly mourn. They, the mourners, shall be comforted. It's a future. They shall be comforted, if not immediately, definitely, ultimately. Ultimately, all believers someday will have no more mourning. He gives us tastes. He gives us tastes now. There's tastes now. I was talking to somebody earlier in the hallway. And she was just had a taste of heaven. He said, this is what it's going to be like. And then, uh, then we go back to normal life. And we both agreed that that's what we're made for. According to this verse, we're made for the valley. We get tastes of the mountaintop. Tastes. They're not to be normal because that's not where we live. But one day we will be there. And so here we get, it's like that appetizer. It's to, it's to draw you in for something better. And this blessing, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This comes from God. It's a gift. It's not something we can contrive. We don't contrive mourning and we don't contrive the comfort that comes from it. Look with me to Psalm 30, verse 11 and 12. It's up there. You can turn in your Bible. Here's an individual who sees that God has turned his mourning into dancing. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Notice, here's the reason, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. When God comforts us, we go from being bummed out to boasting, boasting of a God who turns our mourning into dancing. Now, some of you are thinking he should do some sort of uh, picture of what does it mean to go mourning into dancing. I'm not going to do that for you. It's supposed to be a joke. You're supposed to laugh. Funny, huh? Isaiah 41 and 2. Not only does it happen to us individually, it happens to us corporately. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her for her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord double for all her sins. That God himself says to his people and he says to us, draw comfort, I give it to you. And here's probably where Jesus is picking up up in the Old Testament, Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open in the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, here to comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, and it's similar to what we looked at earlier, that he may be glorified. God gives us the gift of comfort when we truly mourn so that we may give him the glory. Amen? One pastor has said it like this, God is most glorified in you when you and I are most satisfied in him. 
And Jesus picked up on that if he turned with me to Luke 4. So here in Isaiah 61, Isaiah makes a prophecy. The Spirit of the Lord has come upon me. And Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, he came to Nazareth. And when he had been brought up, he was, as was his custom. So he went to church regularly. It's a good thing. He went to the synagogue on, on the Sabbath day and he stood up and read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. They hand him Isaiah and he unrolls and he finds the place where it is written. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The spirit of the Lord is on me, upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind and to set liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favor of the Lord. Uh, the, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here's Jesus literally opening up this scroll, going, picks out perfectly what he wanted to say to that people that day. And he chooses Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And he says, today. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of the synagogue were on him. It's as if I got up here and I read that scripture and then you were following me. What's he going to say? And he began to say to them, today. Sometime A.D. 33, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Done deal. The kingdom has come. And they all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless, you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself What you have heard, you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, no prophet in Israel is acceptable in his own hometown. And then he gives them an illustration. But in truth, I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land and Elijah was sent to none of them, none to the widows of Israel, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. He gives two illustrations saying, Jesus, not Jesus, but there the prophets were sent to a people not their own. Now watch their reply to this. He had just said, here it is today. It's fulfilled in your, in your presence. And then he gives them another illustration. We must go to the lost who aren't of Israel. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But because his hour had not yet come, passing through their midst, he went away. They wanted him dead. Here they are, we're praising him. In the next minute, they want him dead. But it wasn't his hour. See, he wasn't going to let anyone just kill him. He would say in John, I lay my life down on my own. In perfect submission, though he asked the cup to be taken from him, he would lay down his own life. It's not up there, but I felt this morning I should read it, that Jesus, before he laid down his life, came and it says, and he drew near and saw the city and he wept over it saying, would that you have, even you had known this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. 
you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he weeps for his own people. The one man who never had any reason to mourn over his own sin weeps over the sin of others, and he weeps. And here he goes on, and yes, they wanted him dead, and dead he was. Dead he would have been for them, for their sin, rightly mourned for. He dies on the cross, and in Luke 24, having risen from the dead, he now explains to them who he is. And because of Jesus, because he came and he fulfilled Isaiah 61, he was the one who never had any reason to mourn personally, but did it for society and took their sin upon himself, and he now sits at the right hand of God. This is what you and I can do until he comes. Until he comes, this is what you and I get to do. 2 Corinthians 5, 3 and 4 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. There it is. They shall be comforted. Who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves were comforted by God. So the Bible tells us the God of mercies and the God of all comfort, by his grace, uses the struggles and the pain we have in our life so that we may be conduits of grace to others. We're not to be cul-de-sacs of grace and just gather in all this, but the, the, the joy and the comfort that we received, we can give away. It doesn't always look the same, but it's there to aid. For instance, it's happened three times in this congregation. Back in 1996, hold on to that. Back in 1996, I lost my father. I didn't know why. Some of you fathers are here in this room. Praise be to God. Why did God take my father? But that pain and that struggle and the questioning, it it paid off. Because then I can come to you, can come to your children, can come to you. And say, I don't know the answer, but I know this. Let's bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforted me in that affliction that I may be able to comfort you. And if you look at verse 5 up there, here's the gospel tie to that. For we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. So through Christ, we share abundantly in the comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort. That is a way to look at suffering that's so opposite of the world. You mean to tell me when I'm afflicted, it's so somebody else might be comforted in the future? Yes. Wow. That's a new way to look at suffering. By the way, if you weren't here last week, we we said the Beatitudes begin with humility and they end with suffering. We're so glad you're here. Be humbled and suffer. But there's, there's a joy that comes from it. That, that The pain that I went through, I was able to give away as a conduit of God's grace. God did for me what I could not do for myself so that I could meet others in their time of need. Amen? And we do that and we'll continue to do that on and on and on until when? Until this verse happens. Verse Re- Revelation seven seventeen. For the Lamb... The one who was slaughtered. That's what, when you hear, see the lamb in the New Testament, you're supposed to say, this is the 
one who was slaughtered for my sin, for the sin of those who promote abortion, for the sin of those who promote human trafficking, for the sin of those who uh, promote prostitution, for the sin of those who laugh at starvation in their own countries, for the sin of those who are out there promoting gay marriage, for the sin of them, for the sin of gossip in the church, for the sin of the lack of zeal for God's mission. Lamb was slain. And he's in the midst of the throne and he'll be shepherd. So he's slain and he's now the Lord. And he will guide them to the springs of living water. And there his father, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And Revelation 21.4 says this, and we will end with it. He, that is God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Key phrase, according to Matthew 5, 4, here's Revelation 21, 4, neither shall there be mourning. No more. Never again. Ever. Is that, if that's not great hope, I don't know what is. No pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Question. Are we mourners? Does our own sin and the sin of the world around us make us deeply sad? If not, let's ask God to break our hearts for what breaks his. Father, we thank you that your word is so clear. It's the exact opposite of what the world would cause us to do. The world would want us to be strong and confident and not show any weakness. The world doesn't want us to cry and weep, but to be tough. The world wants us to hide our sin and to play as if everything were going well. But your word tells us to be poor in spirit, to recognize we're dependent on you, and any strength that we have comes from the power that you provide. And your word tells us to be sad. Not mopey, not grumpy, but as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, rightly observing the pain in our own life and the pain around us. And rightly calling people to repentance, starting with ourselves. So Father, would you do that work in our own heart if we're not saddened over what breaks your heart? Would you give us a divine sadness? Would you give us the miracle of mourning so that we might rightly understand the vast implications of the cross? And at the same time, would you give us a picture of that hope that one day it'll all be over? Until then, let us be conduits of your grace to help those who are struggling and in need. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Men who are helping with communion would come forward.